Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Yes, uh, who are you is always such an open big question. Where do you begin? Uh, but like Nick said, my name's Sophie. Um, I find myself living at the moment uh, in on the plains, I think is how you hills dwellers put it. Uh, not very often I come up the hill. Um, I live in Richmond, go to Richmond Baptist, um, spend a lot of my life at Tabor. So I've seen quite a few familiar Tabor faces. Um, one of the lecturers there. And uh, my household is me and um, a housemate who we have a lot of fun together. Um, Yeah, no pets because we're not even allowed to have fish in our house, which is devastating, but it says that on our lease. Um, So my plants are my babies. Um, I have about 70 indoor house plants. At the moment, they are getting neglected, but it's winter. It's fine. They'll get repotted soon because spring is coming. Good, good. Um, Why don't you tell us what's the highlight of your week? Oh my gosh. This week has been absolutely crazy, um, mind-boggling crazy at work. It was just a really busy week, but the highlight of my week would have had to have been sitting down with one of my classes. Uh, It's called Missional Discipleship, and I was sitting with these incredible students having a conversation about what digital discipleship looks like. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in a digital age? Uh, And I had four questions planned and three hours and we only got through three questions. That's how engaged they were. And so that just brings me so much joy, seeing mm. people engage with um, what it means to look like people who follow Jesus in a digital world. Yeah, cool. Now, um, you and your housemate mm. uh, have a podcast together. Mm. Can you tell us um, why in this world of so many digital voices, digital spaces, uh, why, have you, why are you doing a podcast and what do you hope to achieve with that? Mm. Did anyone see those memes at the beginning of COVID that were like, we don't need any more podcasts? Like, that was me. That was so me. I was like, we do not need any more podcasts. This is ridiculous. But I was having a conversation with um, one of my housemates uh, about all sorts of different things. And she's like, we really need to make a podcast out of this. And I thought, no, we don't. Like, and she just kept hounding me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually I gave in. She couldn't do it without me because I've got the technical know-how. Um, but the reason we decided to do it was because one of the things that I find uh, in my work at Tabor and in my work as um, a pastor as well, that people come to me and just say, like, we were never given space to ask questions in church. Like, church was always a place where you had to come and you had to have the right answers uh, and you had to, you know, agree with exactly everything that was going on in the church. And I was like, that's just so unhelpful, like having questions and wrestling with questions. And so that's all we're really doing is saying to people, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to wrestle with things of faith. And it's okay to sit in the tension of not always having the answers. Mm. Uh, and so we will keep doing the podcast as long as that keeps being an issue or as long as we can keep coming up with topics to talk about, which people keep asking questions. So, Cool. Yeah. And what's the podcast called? It's called That's Good From You. Uh, that's good from you. And someone this week said to me, it sounds sarcastic, like the sort of thing you would say, like, that's good from you. Uh, But it was a genuine thing that got said in our household. When I would say something, Emma, my housemate, would go, oh, that's good from you. And so that's how the podcast got named. Yeah, I've I've listened to quite a bit and I really highly rate it. So do look that up and whatever podcast medium you have. I will hand over to you. I'll grab the lectern for you. Awesome, thank you. You can get into it. 
So speaking of difficult topics and having questions, you may walk away from tonight with more questions than when we started, and that is okay. So if you find yourself in that place with lots of questions at the end of this evening, that's a good thing in my books, not a bad thing. But I wonder what comes to mind for you. So tonight we're going to engage our imaginations. What comes to mind for you when I ask you this question? What is the most world-changing, life-changing event that you can think of? What is the most life-changing event that you can think of? They could be events that shaped the world globally or it could have been an event specifically in your life. But it's an event that significantly changed the way you saw something or the way the world works. So it could be a personal thing. For example, um, it's a random example, but my parents separated when I was eight and I spent a lot of time moving between mum and dad's houses weekly. But that didn't just change the practical reality of my life in terms of having to pack all my stuff up into a box and move it between houses each week. It's changed everything. It changes how I engage with people. It changed how I saw myself and my own sense of self-worth. Uh, it, it changed how I understand families and how I see them today. So it was a single event that really has changed my life. But it could also be a global event. So I only need to say two numbers to you for some images to come to mind. So if I was to say 9-11, that would bring up a whole host of different pictures in your mind. And that wasn't just an event that changed the practical realities of life, or though it did, airport security got a little bit tighter after that moment. But it changed how people feel about travel, changed how the world has viewed certain faith uh, backgrounds and certain cultural backgrounds. So I think as humans, we inherently understand, at least from our own experience, if not the global experience, that a single event can have an incredibly long-lasting, world-changing impact. And one of the moments that probably most radically changed the direction of my life was deciding to follow Jesus when I was 13. So not only did I experience freedom and love like nothing else I had ever known, following Jesus literally changed the course of my life. It was a world-changing event. You see, even at 13, I had my own life planned out. I had things that I thought I would be doing. Uh, I hated school. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I almost dropped out in year 12. I handed my year 12 coordinator a letter that said, that's it, I'm done, I'm leaving. And he handed it back to me. And so I did eventually finish, but that wasn't my plan. I hated school so much, I never, ever intended to set foot inside a university. I just never wanted to go anywhere near formal education again. And I really liked Jesus. In fact, I was learning to love Jesus as a teenager, but I found church so boring that I thought there's no way I would ever consider working in a church. But meeting Jesus literally changed everything. Turns out Jesus had different plans for my life because I've now been working for a church for, or a few different churches for 13 years. And not only did I go to study, but I now have two degrees and planning a PhD and I teach the Bible in a university setting. So God has a ridiculous sense of humour, jokes on me apparently, but my life has changed in ways that I never thought would be possible. So my life was changed, my life was turned upside down by what I would argue is the most significant world-changing event that has ever happened so go with me on this. This central kind of outrageous claim of Christianity is that the resurrection of Jesus 
is the single most world-changing event in history. And that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. What on earth is the resurrection and why is it such a big deal? But we really need to start by asking the question, what is the resurrection? Because it's one of those super churchy words that you hear in songs and you hear spoken about all the time, but you will never find yourself using it in everyday conversation with your friends. And so if you're sitting there going, I don't know exactly what that word means, that's really fine. But defining it is super important. So to understand what the word resurrection means, we need to back up just a little bit and talk about Jesus before his death and his resurrection. So most people, not everyone, but most people are willing to agree that a guy named Jesus lived approximately 2,000 years ago, taught some really interesting stuff, and even most people agree that he died on a cross, that he was put to death on a Roman cross. The evidence for those events is so strong and you won't find that many people who have wrestled with the evidence who would flat out disagree. So most people are on board with the fact that Jesus was a real figure in history who's pretty famous for his life, the things he said and for his death. But here's the thing, somewhere between 20,000 and 50,000 men died in the same way Jesus did in the 50 years either side. 20 to 50,000 people died on Roman crosses at the hands of the Roman Empire. And there were so many other wise teachers and sages in Jesus' day. He wasn't the only one offering and teaching wisdom for life. So why is it that 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this one man and none of the other people who taught wisdom like he did or who died just like he did? And why is it that somewhere around 2.38 billion people, or approximately a third of the world's population, claim to follow this Jesus and not any of the other people who were around at the time who died the way he did? What is it that makes Jesus so special? And the Gospels, the books that tell us about Jesus' life, explain to us that it's actually because of what happens next in the story the thing that comes after Jesus' death, that three days after Jesus' death, the gospel writers tell us he was resurrected, that God raised him from the dead. And what is utterly unique about Jesus is his resurrection. And the New Testament is clear that the resurrection is the defining event that fundamentally turned everything upside down and changed the entire world. But the resurrection has to probably be one of the most misunderstood moments in history as well. So the most world-changing, but possibly also the most misunderstood. A lot of Christians don't even fully grasp the fullness and the beauty of what the resurrection is. Most people go, okay, the resurrection means that, you know, Jesus came back to life and that's pretty unbelievable. And some people, when they say unbelievable, they mean, wow, that is so unbelievable. That is so cool. And other people, when they say unbelievable, they mean it literally couldn't have happened. Like unbelievable means impossible, that it's impossible for someone to come back after being dead for three days. And you might find yourself, depending on the day, sitting in one or two, one or the other of those positions. Just because you claim to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you're always necessarily thinking this definitely happened. But actually, the claim of the New Testament is so much bigger than Jesus came back to life. 
and coming back to life isn't actually what the word resurrection means. So understanding the word resurrection is super important. It doesn't simply mean coming back to life or being resuscitated. So what does it mean? And why do we use resurrection, a word like resurrection, rather than a word like resuscitation, for example, to describe what happened to Jesus? So let's start with what it's not because it's easier to describe what the resurrection isn't and then work from there. So when someone is brought, or someone's dead and is brought back to life, we call that resuscitation. It happens all the time in hospitals, or at least it does in the TV shows that I watch, like House and Grey's Anatomy. I'm assuming it happens in real medical settings. If anyone here is a doctor, you can tell me about it later. But honestly, like any time someone is medically brought back to life, it is miraculous. Like that is just incredible. Uh, but here's the thing. It isn't permanent. Someone who is resuscitated will at some point later in their life die again. They are given longer to live, and that is a miracle in and of itself, but they will die again one day. Resurrection, on the other hand, has a few important distinctions. And the first is, it isn't permanent. The the, it is permanent, sorry. The biblical claim is that anyone who is resurrected, who has a resurrected body, will live forever. So Jesus didn't die again after he was resurrected, which um, surprisingly surprises some people. Uh, but because of uh, his, the body that he was given, his resurrected body, he lived forever and is still living today, which raises the question, how on earth is that possible? Because the human body, at least in our experience of the world, is always getting older and is always moving towards death. And so how on earth is it possible that Jesus is still alive? And the answer to that question seems to be that Jesus didn't come back to the same kind of life that you and I are living now. He wasn't brought back to, a, to continue on in his old life and then die again one day. Something had changed. And what the writers of the New Testament seem to be suggesting is that Jesus didn't simply die and come back to the same kind of life he was living before, but rather Jesus actually died, went through death, conquered death, and came out the other side into a new kind of life, a resurrection life, a new mode of existence, one that is quite difficult for us on this side of life to get our heads around. But Jesus is what Christians might call a new creation, meaning that in some way he has been made new. He is living a new, different kind of life. So can you see why I actually think the claim of the resurrection is much bigger than we've possibly thought? We aren't just talking about a miraculous rising from the dead three days later. This is something more. This is something different. It's a different kind of life that Jesus has entered into on the other side of death. So Jesus' new creation life was the same in some ways to his old life. He had a physical body. He was able to go fishing and eat with the disciples. He still bore the scars of his death. But he was really different in some other ways. He could appear in locked rooms. He could make it so that people didn't recognise him. So he was the same, but somehow different. Jesus had what we might call a resurrected body and was living a new kind of life. And the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, concluded that Jesus had actually gone through death 
and out the other side into this new mode of human existence. So he still had a human body, but it's changed, it's transformed. And so the word they used for that was resurrection. That's how they talked about what happened to Jesus. And this, they believed, is what will happen to followers of Jesus when Jesus comes back again. So Christians too will have resurrected new creation bodies. Now, you might be sitting there thinking that sounds kind of outrageous. And if that is the case, that is totally fine. But that is the claim of the Christian faith. So it's not just that Jesus went through death, conquered death, came out the other side into a new kind of life. But Jesus actually offers us us as well, a, this new kind of life. And that actually fundamentally changes the world. So we're going to talk about how it changes the world in a few minutes. But it is probably worth pausing at this point because I recognise that that is a lot to take in, especially if you're hearing it for the first time. So you're possibly thinking, I thought my Christian friends were a little bit odd, but now I just think they're straight up crazy because who could believe this? And I get that. Uh, And even some of you who have grown up around the church are probably thinking, are you sure? Should we have invited her? Is she really, is what she's saying really true? Uh, And the first thing that I want to say is it's okay to doubt and not be sure about the massive claims of the resurrection. There is this beautiful story in the New Testament of Jesus after the resurrection showing himself to one of the followers who had to see it to believe it. There's a guy called Thomas, he often unfairly gets called Doubting Thomas, but there's this guy called Thomas who couldn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected without seeing proof. And so Jesus invites Thomas to experience his resurrected body. He says, look at where the nails went through, come and touch them. So Thomas needed proof. And sure, there's a line in there where Jesus says, blessed are those who can believe without proof, and that's great. But it isn't feasible for all of us. Some of us, like Thomas, need to see some evidence first. So I'm actually really glad that Thomas's story made it into the Bible to show us that it's okay to have times where we aren't sure, where we doubt, and maybe where we want proof. But it is also worth knowing that there's actually really strong historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So there are two key uh, authors who have written about this. One's name is Lee Strobel, the other's is Josh McDowell. And they were atheists who set out to disprove Christianity and ended up writing books in favour of the resurrection being a real event. And I was listening to Lee Strobel talk about this a couple of days ago, uh, and he said that he set out to disprove the resurrection first because the resurrection is the linchpin or the thing that holds the Christian faith together. And he figured if he could disprove the resurrection of um, Jesus, that Christianity would fall over entirely and cease to exist. So it's been going for 2,000 years, but if this one man, he's like, if I can disprove the resurrection, it's all over. What's really interesting, though, is Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, which is a um, passage that I think you guys are going through, 1 Corinthians 15 at the moment, he actually says something really similar in chapter 15. Paul says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, if he hasn't been resurrected, then our faith is useless. So for Paul, the resurrection was central to the Christian faith. And so Lee Strobel sets out to build the case for the resurrection of Jesus being untrue, of being a made-up story. And it's worth mentioning that he had a personal or a vested interest in disproving it because his wife had just come home and told him, I'm becoming a Christian. And he was like, I'm not having this. I want to talk you out of it. And so he actually set out to disprove the resurrection in order to talk his wife out of becoming a Christian. And so he spent two years collecting all the evidence for and against the resurrection of Jesus. And he got to the point where he thought, I don't have any more evidence to find. I've found everything there is. I have to make a decision. 
And so after weighing up all the evidence, he concluded, and this is his words, it would take greater faith to remain an atheist than to become a Christian. After two years of exploring the resurrection and trying to disprove it, he said it would take greater faith to become an atheist than to, uh, to remain an atheist than become a Christian. So there is a lot of evidence out there if you're interested in exploring it further. So if you have any questions or doubts about whether any of this is true, there are some amazing resources that Nick can point you to. I'm happy to point you towards them as well. They may not answer all your questions, but they will certainly help you wrestle with the evidence. So I wanted to say that to say it's actually okay to not be sure about this. Uh, some stats have come out recently, I think um, Nick referred to them a couple of weeks ago to say that, uh, I think it was in the UK, somewhere like only 50% of young adult Christians actually believe that the resurrection is true. So in a room like this, we might assume that there's some doubts and some questions and that's okay. But rather than dive into the evidence tonight, I actually want us to use our imaginations a little and ask the question, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and I say if, because I don't want to assume everyone's on the same page, but if the resurrection of Jesus is true, why is it such a big deal? How on earth does it change the world? And what are the implications for us? So there could be lots of answers to the question of why the resurrection is such a big deal, but I want to unpack a few that stand out to me. So you may be able to come up with others, but these are some that come to mind for me. And the first one is so obvious that I almost miss it and overlook it every time I think about the resurrection of Jesus. And that is, if the resurrection is true, who on earth is this God that has the power to raise someone to life and take them through death and out the other side into a new kind of life? Who is this? What? Like, who has the power to do that? If the resurrection happened, then this is a really powerful God that we are talking about. So the resurrection becomes a sign of God's incomprehensible, unfathomable power. And if he is powerful enough to do that, what else can he do? So I want you to use your imagination again for a moment. If this is the kind of God we're talking about, who is able to bring life from death, who is able to bring hope out of hopeless situations, what kind of life and hope could he bring into the hard situations in your life and in my life? What kind of hope and life could he bring to the world? So the resurrection for me is proof that God is powerful, that he has things under control, that he has the power to do what he has promised right from the opening pages of the Bible. And what is it that he's promised? He's promised to bring life and freedom, peace, justice and hope to the world. Which brings me to the second thing that stands out for me. And that is that the resurrection shows that God is making good on his promise to bring us life. Think about this, all of life, if you were to look at life, anything that's alive, it all appears to be heading towards death and decay. That's the trajectory of our lives as we get older. It seems to be the trajectory of the planet, depending on who you ask. But we don't need to look too far to see it. If you watch the news, if you spend any time on social media, the fact that the world is heading towards death and decay and brokenness is so in your face. But the resurrection of Jesus interrupts that and says that death is not final, that death doesn't have the last word, and that even when you can't see it, the power of God is at work raising dead things to life and restoring what has been broken. 
And what's even crazier than that is the New Testament claims that the resurrection isn't just something that will happen to Jesus. It is something that will happen to followers of Jesus as well in the future when Jesus comes back again. And so the invitation is for us to experience resurrection life too. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains that Jesus was raised first, then anyone who follows Jesus will be raised to the same kind of life that he was raised to. One of my favourite scholars, Tom Wright, says that Jesus is the prototype for new creation, that he's the prototype. So he's the one we look to, he's the first, and we look to him to see what new creation will be like, to see what our own resurrected bodies will look like. So we can look to Jesus and see the new restored resurrected creation that he will bring, which already seems like enough to get our heads around, and yet there's more. Paul takes it one step further in his second letter to the Corinthians and says that this new creation, this resurrection life, isn't just available sometime in the future when Jesus comes back to put things right. Paul says that anyone who is in Christ, anyone who believes in and follows Jesus is a new creation. Not will be a new creation sometime in the future, is a new creation here and now. And I think that's a pretty bold claim. Because there are lots of days where I don't feel like a new creation. Some days I feel like a very old creation when my back and my neck hurts, like today. Uh, There are days where I feel like an old creation when my mental health is not good or when I'm struggling to love people. But part of living in this strange time between Jesus' death and resurrection and when he comes back again is wrestling with the tension that Jesus has already come to set things right and he has made things new in the power of his resurrection. And yet there are still some things in our world that aren't yet what they should be. Um, And we won't experience those until Jesus comes back again. This is what theologians have coined the now but not yet, that new life has arrived, that we can be a new creation now, and yet we're waiting for it to be fully realised or fully expressed when he comes again. So those of us who follow Jesus are called a new creation now, even on days when it doesn't feel like it. Even as we wait for the day when Jesus comes back to set things right, we are new creations now. And the invitation for us, should we choose to accept it, is that if the resurrection is true, that we can enter into this new kind of life. And so the New Testament writers are quite clear. This has here and now implications for us. Those of us who choose to live as followers of Jesus, as new creations, have a responsibility If this is true, if the resurrection is not just a historical fact, it actually changes everything about how I live my life. I have a responsibility to tell the world and live my life as a new creation. I have a responsibility to tell tell people and live in a way that shows that justice and peace are not just something that we're waiting for, that they're actually something that is already broken in that have come as part of Jesus' resurrection and I'm now invited to participate and work towards them. I'm actually invited as someone who follows Jesus to live a life of justice and of peace and to help bring other people to a place of restoration and reconciliation and flourishing. That's a really cool invitation that we get to participate with what God is doing to bring the world to rights. The third thing that stands out is that the resurrection shows us that there is hope for dead and dormant things to come to life. So not only do we get this new life, it actually shows us that death is not final. Death is not the end. Through the power of the resurrection, Christians believe that life has triumphed over death. 
Paul says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Meaning that death has lost its power and its pain. In the end, death doesn't win. And this doesn't just mean physical death. Like sure, we experience um, the, the death of loved ones and, and people in our lives, but there are so many other deaths and breakdowns that we experience in our lives. So think about the places in your life where you experience a death or a breakdown in relationships. You may have relationships in your life that have broken down and you've seen a death in them. It may have been a death of hopes and dreams. We experience breakdown and brokenness within ourselves. And if you've ever had any mental health struggles, I think you'll get this one on a really deep level, that there is actually a, a breakdown, a brokenness and a death that occurs within us when we face anything like that. And we actually witness and contribute to the breakdown and decay of our beautiful planet. And so the good news of the resurrection is that the death and brokenness and decay of all of that will ultimately be undone, that death does not have a final say. But not just that, if the resurrection is true, I have hope because it means that I can look at the world in all of its state of brokenness and pain and know that this is not all there is. This is not the end. I have hope for a future world that is free of sickness and pain and anxiety and death and violence and brokenness. And I don't know about you, but that's a world that I long to live in. That's a world that I'm praying for and that I long for. And this is what we call new creation. When Jesus comes back to put everything right, to restore everything that has been broken in creation. And I think Nick's going to be talking about that in a few weeks time. So I recommend that you make time to be here for that because thinking and talking through the new creation is one of the most incredible things that you can do. But the invitation of new creation is far beyond anything we could imagine. There is hope for a coming day where everything that is broken and unjust in our world will be put right. And the resurrection of Jesus is what makes that possible. And I know that was a lot. So a quick recap. In the resurrection, God's power is on display. And God's power doesn't just raise Jesus to life as if that wasn't enough. It also raises us to new life. It restores and reconciles all that is broken in the world. And this new life is somehow available to us now and we are invited to participate in the restoring and reconciling work of God in the world in our here and now. And God's power in raising Jesus gives us hope that he will come back one day and put all things right. So being a Christian isn't simply about believing that some historical events happened 2,000 years ago. It's not simply about believing that Jesus came back to life. It's actually about believing that the whole way the world works has completely and fundamentally changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we get invited to be part of God's ongoing plan to put all things right. And that is a massive, ridiculous claim that kind of makes no sense. And yet that is the huge claim of people who follow Jesus, that it is because of the resurrection of Jesus that there is a new kind of life available to us. And if that wasn't enough, perhaps the most remarkable thing in all of this for me about the resurrection is the fact that Jesus is alive. It seems so obvious, but Jesus is alive. He's not dead. It's very hard to be in relationship with someone who is no longer alive 
And so the fact that Jesus is still alive and invites us to be in relationship with himself and invites us to follow him is probably the most incomprehensible part of this for me. That the God of the universe invites us to be in relationship with himself. And so if you decide to trust and follow him, it will be a wild ride. It's the best way to sum it up. It's not always easy, but it is a wild ride. And it will quite literally change your life. Let me pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful, not just for your death, but also for your resurrection. So thankful for the way that you have made a way through death into this new kind of life for us. But there are so many days where it's hard to see this new life at work. It's hard to see your kingdom and your new creation breaking into the world because everything looks hard. Um, There are days where things are hard Um, in my life. There are days where things are hard in the lives of the people around me and it's just so hard to see it. And yet I'm so thankful that your story, your resurrection gives us hope that there is a day coming where death and sickness, mourning, crying, pain, all of the things that we experience in this world will be no more. And so I pray as we continue to wrestle uh, with the ideas about the resurrection, as we sometimes sit in the not knowing uh, whether all of this could even possibly be true, I pray that you'll continue to bring us back to yourself and the hope that can only be found in you. Lord, we are longing and praying for the day where you will set all things right. We long to see your hope and your justice and your peace and your freedom in this place, in our world. And I pray that you would help us be the hands and feet of you in the world to bring those things, that you would show us where we can participate with you in the setting right of all things, in bringing hope and life and freedom, peace and justice to the world around us. So pray that as we uh, sit and as we eat and as we have conversation, uh, that you would help some of these things take seed, that we would see your power, that we would see your hope, that we would see the life that you are inviting us into uh, and that we would feel free to ask questions and to wrestle with all of this. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.